Global Pathways podcast with Ray Offenheiser is produced by the University of Notre Dame Initiative for Global Development, also known as NDIGD, an integral part of Notre Dame's Keough School of Global Affairs. NDIGD works to address global poverty and inequality through policy, practice, and partnership, and is a catalyst for centers and faculty at Notre Dame to develop interdisciplinary research programs that address today's most pressing global development challenges. Learn more at ndigd.nd.edu. Hello and welcome to the Global Pathways podcast. I'm Ray Offenheiser, and today my guest is Scott Paul, the Humanitarian Policy Lead at Oxfam America. Based in Washington, D.C., Scott leads Oxfam America's policy advocacy work on humanitarian policy. He has spearheaded work on a number of major crises around the world, including Yemen, Somalia, Nigeria, Myanmar, and Bangladesh. His advocacy in these emergencies focuses on the political drivers of violence and vulnerability. He has testified before Congress and is a frequent media commentator with such outlets as the New York Times, the Washington Post, Foreign Policy, and Al Jazeera. Paul is also responsible for formulating Oxfam America's approach to U.S. foreign policy as it relates to multilateralism and global governance. Before joining Oxfam, Paul was the U.N. representative for Civic and led campaigns at Citizens for Global Solutions to strengthen the U.S. government's commitment to international cooperation and the rule of law. Scott, welcome. Thanks, Ray. Delighted to have you here. Good to be back with you. So today we want to just basically have a conversation really about the situation in Yemen. And as I think we've tried to characterize it at the beginning of this podcast, this is the world's largest humanitarian crisis. It's hard to believe that there's something that's more dramatic and where there is more suffering than Syria today. But Yemen certainly, I think, is that case. And we want to actually highlight that today. And I think the other paradox about Yemen is the fact that in some ways, here we are talking about it, but it has largely been a crisis that has been, probably not fair to say, ignored by the media, but at least underreported and scarcely covered, while other stories have dominated. And yet the scale of the humanitarian crisis is quite enormous. I wonder if you could just take us into a little bit of what When we talk about this as a crisis, what do we see on the ground? Why should we be paying attention to this? Why should citizens of the world really be thinking and focused on on Yemen today, given what's going on there? We actually want to start where you started, Ray, which is why haven't people been hearing about Yemen? My colleague, Hassan Kamal, refers to Yemen, his home country, as a prison without walls. And it's a prison without walls because people who need to leave, including for urgent medical care, can't get out. And journalists who want to come in and tell the story can't get in because they're being prohibited by the parties to the conflict. And all the while, people like you and me here in the U.S., we're not hearing the stories. And you add a layer on top of that when the Trump administration's Muslim ban comes into place and now Yemenis can't emigrate here. So the story is not being told in the way that it should be. Let's try to paint a picture of what that looks like on the ground. I've been coming in and out of Yemen now for about three years, and what's Shocking and disturbing about meeting families in crisis in Yemen is most of what they need to survive is available in front of them. If you're a Yemeni who is suffering from acute hunger and malnutrition, mostly there's food right in front of you and you can't afford it. And that's because this is an economic crisis. This is a crisis that's entirely man-made, not related to natural hazards, and driven by a conflict that should have been brought to a close a long time ago. Well, when we say it has economic origins, maybe you could explain a little bit what you mean. In other words, the economy has clearly collapsed, but looking at it from the outside, some people might say, well, this is really the result of the conflict 
itself yeah. rather than perhaps the inverse. In other words, that the economy was in some sense faltering, you know, there was poverty and that there was discontent prior to the initiation of the conflict. But perhaps many of us don't know that part of the story. Maybe you could fill us in a little bit on the origins of the conflict and its connection to inequality, poverty, and economic factors. Yeah, it's a bit of both. It's a bit of what's happened before the conflict, and it's a bit of what's happened since. And because it's so complicated, I have a shorthand that I use, and I try to break it down to four words that begin with the letter I. You may have heard this before in a recent event, but I find it helpful for people to understand and then be able to explain to their family and friends. So the first of those I words is inequality. Inequality is Yemen's baseline condition. There's a select few people who have made a huge amount of money in the past few decades, essentially siphoning off Yemen's natural resource wealth and public funds. Then there's most Yemenis who struggle to get by. And then there's the bottom, say, 15% who are acutely poor and socially marginalized as well. And since the conflict, that first 15% were the first to face a struggle for their lives. Now that middle group, the ones that were getting by before, now they're in acute crisis as well. So that's inequality. The second is imports, because Yemen is an import-dependent country. It relies on imports for most of its food and most of its fuel. And the Saudi-led coalition fighting in the war has imposed a partial blockade of the country, which has allowed some things to come in. But a lot of what is intended to come in has to wait to come into the ports. And what that's done is it's massively inflated the prices. So you can get food in most of the markets. You can get fuel in most of the markets, but it's really expensive. Third eye is institutions. Yemen's government institutions have been torn apart by the conflict, and in particular by the politicization on both sides of it. The central bank has been split in two. The currency has become completely unstable. It's basically been slashed in a third to a third of its value before the conflict. And government workers haven't been paid in two and a half years. And about a quarter of all Yemeni families depend on those salaries. It's a hugely important income stream. And that's separate and apart from the public services that people aren't receiving because these ministries aren't working the way they used to. So that's institutions. And the last I is infrastructure. And this is the one that Americans should be most paying attention to because U.S. bombs dropped by the Saudi and Emirati-led coalition are responsible for the majority of that destruction. And we're talking about roads and bridges, ports, hospitals, schools, markets, the basic economic backbone of the country. And it's fallen apart because of all parties to the conflict, but largely because of a bombing campaign that has taken them out. And you don't see that on the news. And so the end result is you have people who, even when they're safe, can't find work. And when they can find work, The little money that they're making isn't anywhere near enough to pay for the very basic goods they need to survive, and there's no social safety net or services anymore. So the economic elite, in effect, that were benefiting from this dramatic levels of inequality, in some sense, lost control of the situation. There was a grassroots uprising of the population that kind of gave origins to the conflict. One would have imagined that it's not necessarily in the interest of that economic elite for this kind of scenario to unfold. What's happened to them? Where have they gone, or where do they figure into this entire conflict? Well, they've split a little bit. It's a really interesting question. So some of them are still benefiting. Some of them have become what we would call war profiteers. They've aligned themselves with the parties to the conflict and figured out how to make a buck off of it. Others just don't have the power that they used to. They've been disempowered by the political transition. 
And, you know, what happened a bit more than four years ago today was the Saudi and Emirati-led coalition supported by the U.S. entered the conflict. A lot of Yemenis will remind you that that's not when the war started. But the reason it's such an important moment is that the internationalization of the conflict was actually what, in a lot of ways, upended Yemen's traditional power structures. So the people who had economic and social power in Yemen and who ordinarily, after a conflict had escalated, would have had a lot invested in resolving that conflict and bringing the sides together, they weren't in a position to do that anymore. And as a result, the social fabric has torn further and further apart. A lot of them have died. And the ones that are still there are either profiting or not in a position to help anymore. So if we go back again to the beginning of the conflict, I mean, for those of us who are looking at this from the outside, we see sort of a snippet here and a snippet there of news that breaks through from that part of the world. And it's kind of a strange pastiche of a drone bombing of sort of an al-Qaeda representative cell in Yemen, a starving child the next day, a Saudi bombing of a hospital the next day, some mention of some group called the Houthis, but no one's quite sure what that means. I wonder if we could sort of go back to the origins of the conflict when it actually flared up. The Houthis, in some sense, were a group that actually led the insurrection in its earliest days, in some sense driven by these economic factors, and then the wider public joined with them. That's right. But subsequently, there's been sort of more factionalism, I guess, that's emerged out of that that has to do with probably a variety of other sort of issues that are both domestic and perhaps also international. I wonder if you could sketch out a little bit who the Houthis are, what their issue was, who they represent, and then take us a little bit further into the factionalism of the conflict and what's on the ground today and who's on what side for what particular reason. Well, the Houthis sort of began in the 90s, I think, at least a couple of decades ago, as essentially an educational revival movement in the north of Yemen in a place called Sada. And over the course of President Ali Abdullah Saleh's last two decades in power, he increasingly viewed them as a threat. So he fought six wars against them. And he lumped them in together with al-Qaeda and other groups that his international partners identified as terrorists. So when he finally was ousted in the Arab Spring Revolution in 2011-2012, the Houthis were one of those who stood to benefit. And they had a set of demands of the government, just like many other marginalized groups had a set of demands of the government. When the National Dialogue Conference that was meant to put Yemen's future institutions in place failed to address some of those grievances, and then Saudi Arabia stopped its fuel subsidies, the Houthis were the first to organize public opposition to what was happening. And in addition to taking to the streets, they took to their weapons. And they derailed what had been a peaceful, if inequitable, transition of power. And so it'd be less accurate to say that people joined them or sided with them as so much as they found common cause with the Houthis. The Houthis actually represent a very small group of Yemenis. But following the Saudi and Emirati-led intervention in 2015, they were able to position themselves as the national army defending against a foreign invasion, which was very consistent with their messaging. Their messaging and their ideology has always been anti-American, anti-Saudi, and generally anti-interventionist. And a foreign intervention by Saudi Arabia supported by the United States fit exactly into their narrative. So now the way it's played out since then Saudi Arabia and the UAE lead this wide coalition of countries supported by the U.S. and the U.K. The international community has broadly granted legitimacy to that coalition's intervention, even though there still isn't really a political endgame that they have in mind. And there are a set of Yemeni organizations and armed factions that are lining up mostly with the internationally recognized government of Yemen that comprise the ground forces in a lot of different parts of Yemen. 
Some of those are formally allied to the government and support the government. Some of them have supported the government but have made clear that their endgame is an independent South Yemen. And others are a ragtag bunch of Salafi jihadist groups and others who have found common cause for the time being. And it's not my words that you ought to mark, but when the coalition Houthi conflict is resolved, the tensions between those groups will be the next to explode. So a one-peace treaty is not going to resolve these issues in perpetuity. We're likely to see further conflict. Just going back to this question of this coalition force that was put together with international recognition, has this been sanctioned by the UN? And how is the UN sort of positioned on this? Yeah, this was the UN's most important mistake. When I say the UN, I'm specifying the UN Security Council, which was pushed by the US and the UK at the behest of the coalition. In April 2015, the council passed Resolution 2216. And what 2216 basically said is first it said, what was then the interim government of Yemen was the government of Yemen until further notice. And because it was viewed as weak, there was a question as to whether the international community would line up behind it. And so everyone decided, no, this chain of succession, this transfer authority needs to be continued uninterrupted. And then second, what it did is it laid out a set of demands on the Houthis and only the Houthis that the Houthis would unilaterally disarm, that they would withdraw from major cities, that they would release political prisoners, that they would cease exercising functions of the legitimate government. And so what that effectively did is it set up a dynamic in which neither side had any incentive to come to the table. On the government of Yemen side, peace would essentially mark the end of their tenure in power because they would have to transition into something new. And on the Houthi side, peace would only come at the expense of their surrender. And that wasn't worth it to them either. And it's really only been until the very, very recent past in Stockholm that any hint of progress on anything might be possible, not even outside that framework, but alongside that framework. So the agreements in Stockholm are consistent with that framework, but the special envoy there has found a creative way to push de-escalation in certain ways. But in the end, this conflict, and I mean the little conflict between the Houthis and the coalition and government of Yemen, isn't going to be resolved until the international community makes really clear that all sides can achieve their aspirations through a peaceful process. Hasn't been the case so far. And as one sort of watching this from afar and picking up small media bits here and there, one comes away with this impression that, oh, this is something a little bit like Syria. There was an internal insurrection. And now we have, it's kind of escalated into something that involves a whole lot of states in the region and that it's a proxy war and that it also involves Sunni-Shia differences. In other words, it gets raised to another level as kind of a geopolitical conflict. And it leaves one wondering, well, is this really about Iran's ambitions to have a destabilized Yemen on the southern border of Saudi Arabia and maybe to have some ability to control the sort of shipping channels in the region, or is this an effort to ensure that Iran has minimal influence on the western shores of the Arabian Sea? And in all of that, the larger conflict inside the country and the details of that gets lost. And what is your sense of the geopolitical narrative that has kind of begun to surround this, at least through the international media? Yeah, it's harmful. Yemenis don't like it, which is the most important thing. You know, this conflict didn't start that way. But there's a risk that the more Western media outlets and elected officials reflect that rhetoric, that it becomes reality over time. Before the conflict, the Houthis, who practice a form of Islam called Zaydism, which is seen as being part of Shiism, but ideologically fairly close to Sunnism, they didn't have an ideological grievance. 
and neither did Sunni Yemenis. Sunnis would pray in Zaydi mosques, Zaydis would pray in Sunni mosques. Sunnis fought alongside the Houthis, Zaydis fought against the Houthis. So that wasn't the principal fault line. And likewise, Iran's involvement wasn't the principal determinant in how this conflict is going to be resolved. But the more that messaging has taken hold, the more it's become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So now we are starting to see those sectarian differences and the intranational tension that we haven't seen at the beginning. And over the intervening four years, Iran has been able to, through what appears to be very little investment, create a massive political crisis for Saudi Arabia. No one that I know suggests that Iran has any influence over the outcome of political talks. But that's okay. But for them, they're achieving their goal if Saudi Arabia is mired in an unwinnable conflict on its southern border. And so you mentioned negotiations and the need for negotiations. And of course, that is going to be the sort of end game if we can get some agreement on and willingness on various parties to kind of talk about a political solution. There have been talks since in Sweden, but they don't seem to have prospered. They seem to be focused on getting some sort of short-term humanitarian outcomes and gains you know, the opening or the ceasing of bombing of the port in Hadoda. But beyond that is, do you see any promise in those negotiations? Yeah, I do. And I'm probably one of the few people who would come here and be on this podcast with you and say that because, you know, after four years, Yemenis have become very skeptical about the UN's ability to deliver peace. And part of that has to do with the fact that in the past two and a half years, it's made no progress. Part of that has to do with some very obvious mistakes that various special envoys have made that evidence a lack of understanding of Yemeni culture and Yemeni society. Who's included? Who's excluded? Most importantly, in the recent talks, the exclusion of women, the exclusion of the youth who were at the heart of the 2011 and 2012 revolution. I think for a lot of people that represents an ignorance of where Yemen has come from and where Yemen is going. On the flip side, and the reason I'm going to be the only optimist who comes here, I find a huge amount of promise in the fact that despite none of the parties fully implementing their commitments relating to Hodeida in Stockholm over the past few months, none of them have repudiated it. And leading up to the Stockholm agreements, everyone in the humanitarian community's biggest concern was the conflict exploding in Hodeida, creating a massive urban bloodbath and cutting off the humanitarian lifeline to the rest of the country. And despite the fact that things are moving really slowly and the parties are being intransigent, none of them are saying this deal isn't for us anymore. And that to me says that on the part of the Houthis and on the part of the government of Yemen, no one wants to be the one seen by the international community as being the bloc in peace talks. And that counts for something. It means the international community has some leverage. As an advocate, whose job it is to help channel that leverage, it makes me think that we have more power than people think we do. One of the startling things I think about this conflict, again, for those of us watching it from outside, is we would have anticipated and maybe we think that there should be or is a large outmigration of Yemenis to kind of flee the conflict. And yet we don't get the images that we got from Syria. And some have described this as, you know, Yemenis are kind of trapped or they're kind of locked in a cage and being subjected to this horrific sort of combat all around them and these dire sort of social and economic conditions with no place to go. And I wonder if you could sort of comment a little bit on that. It's kind of a frightening prospect to kind of imagine. Yeah, that's exactly right. The people I've talked to in Yemen, leaving the country is the farthest thing from their minds because for the most part, 
what they're seeking is better economic prospects and better safety than they have where they live. There's no good option to leave Yemen. The airport in Sana'a is closed. The airport in Aden is open for commercial flights, but it's incredibly hard to get tickets because everybody wants them. And on top of that, you have to get to Aden, and then you have to be able to afford it, and then you have to be able to afford a new life where you're going. So for most Yemenis, and considering the borders to Saudi Arabia and Oman don't represent an attractive proposition, the best way to find the safety and prospects that they're looking for are to find another place in Yemen, either where they have family or where they can see conditions something like what they're used to, so they can envision how they might find work. So for people fleeing the highlands, it's highlands. For people fleeing the coastline, it's another coastline where they can fish. And of course, if you have family somewhere that you can stay, that's the best option. So that's why there have been more than 3 million people, about 10% of Yemen's population, displaced over the past four years, and so few have made it out. And that's why so few people are telling their stories around the world. For those of you who are doing humanitarian work, groups like Oxfam and Save the Children, World Vision, and others that are on the ground trying to kind of respond to this conflict, this has got to be an extraordinarily challenging situation because basically you have a population displaced and on the move, but without certainty as to where to land. Yeah. You can't cross a border and be a refugee because the borders in Oman and Saudi Arabia are closed. The costs of leaving or otherwise are prohibitive, and the cost of getting out even through the airports is also prohibitive. So what kind of humanitarian response can you provide to a fluid population on the move that are not settled in camps in the more traditional way that humanitarian response is exercised? What do we do in a Yemen situation? A really challenging one. A recent country director ours said basically he spends 70, 80 percent of the time just negotiating access and keeping staff safe. And <laughs> for a country director, that's not what you want to see. You want to see someone who's able to spend time thinking about strategy, thinking creatively about how to reach people. So already the pressure that all of the parties put on humanitarian actors, organizations trying to deliver, is making our job incredibly difficult. The way that Oxfam is responding principally is trying to get people the cash they need to buy food. Because again, the markets are working. Most places we go, there's food. So if you have enough money to buy food at the extraordinary prices they're being sold at, you can probably survive. Likewise, we're trying to help people get access to clean and safe water. In some places, that looks like water trucking because private water distribution is actually part of the Yemeni economy. It's got a long history. We don't want to disrupt that. And in other places, it's rehabilitating municipal water systems. So interventions like that actually offer huge potential benefits because Whoever is moving to Aden, whoever is moving out of Aden, someone is going to be drinking that water. And being able to say whether that's, you know, 300,000 or 400,000 beneficiaries is less important. We know it's saving lives. And I should just say, over and on top of all of that, our overriding mission is to change the way assistance is delivered so it's more appropriate and more responsive to the communities that we're serving and reflective of their needs and aspirations and strengthening the way that they're ultimately going to be able to rebuild the country. So that's why we're prioritizing our work together with local Yemeni partners and ultimately trying to transition the responsibility and decision-making around humanitarian response to our partners. We want to be in a supporting role more than we want to be in a leading role. But Oxfam's generally always led in the wash area, in other words, providing water and sanitation facilities and, and water oftentimes in massive volume. 
is Oxfam in this particular case in the business of actually supporting water trucking or we doing are. its own water trucking? Yeah, we are. And purification? Trucking and purification and rehabilitation of these municipal systems. And we do that sometimes directly and we do it sometimes with partners. Now, one of the things that I guess I was struck by when you're talking about providing cash to families in order to buy food is in a wartime situation, you oftentimes end up with more scarcity and hyperinflation after a while, in which case it becomes more and more difficult to use that particular kind of intervention. What are you facing in that regard in the Yemeni case? Yeah, again, this is a conflict where there is a partial blockade on the country, but that blockade is affecting price more than it's affecting scarcity because it's related to the cost of importation less related ultimately to the amount of food or the amount of fuel that's being brought in. And separately, there's a whole lot of food coming overland from Saudi Arabia and from Oman, also very expensive to bring in. Back to the inequality point, if you have money and you're in a major city in Yemen, you can get anything you want. (laughs) When I was last in Yemen in February, I went to one of Sana'a's bigger supermarkets. It's nearly the size of, you know, a small Walmart, basically, and the shelves are stocked. You walk in and on your right, you have cotton candy. On your left, you have popcorn. You know, you have the vegetable and the produce section on your right. You have frozen goods. You really can get nearly anything that you want if you have money, if you live in a big city. Now, the highland areas that are harder to reach, that's a different story. And if you don't have money, that's an entirely different story. So what we want to be doing is supporting the local economy through a a cash-based intervention. So the people we see who are facing mass starvation, are they people that are in a particular part of the country? Are they simply the bottom 15%? Yeah, it's the bottom 15%. And where do they tend to be located in the country? Are they pretty much all over? They're more all over now than they used to be. They tend to live in the highland areas. The Tahama area around Hodeida and Hadja is one place that they have lived for a long time. But yeah, I think the fact that now many of them have been displaced means There's no governorate in Yemen or nearly no governorate in Yemen that's been spared. So I've been in the north of the country, in the south of the country. I've been in the coastal areas. I've been in the inlands, in the highlands, lowlands. At this point, there's no place where you don't find poor Yemenis fighting for their lives. And they would have traditionally been doing what? They would have been herders or small agriculturalists? Yeah, most of them would have been either small agriculturalists or day laborers. What's been interesting and really sad, actually, is over the last few years, I've watched the people who depend on day labor now depend on humanitarian aid. And the people who were earning salaries now depend on day labor. And then a year later, the people who started depending on day labor could no longer regularly depend on day labor. So it was maybe a once or twice a week kind of thing for them. And unfortunately, the nature of an economic crisis like this is when you don't see things getting better, it means at the household level they're getting worse because people have less resilience from a health point of view and also from a financial point of view to cope with the ongoing stress of the crisis. Again, the issue of the closing of the ports or the management of the port at Hodeida by the Saudis or occasional bombing of it, that isn't necessarily restricting the access to food in the country. But what is the impact of that overall? In other words, why does that end up being so central to the, I suppose you might say, the public and news narrative around Yemen? It does restrict access to food in some parts of the country. I want to be careful not to say that scarcity isn't a problem anywhere, because there are highland areas that are incredibly hard to access and incredibly expensive to transport to. And we know that there have been food shortages in some of those places. And we suspect that there are food shortages in some of those places when we're not there. So it's important to put that on the table. But then for everybody else, again, it's because of price. 
And when food comes in, after it's been sitting, waiting to birth for two months, there are demurrage fees, there are additional insurance charges. And by the time it comes in, it's incredibly expensive. Now you add to that, it's not just food that's struggling to get in, but fuel also, right? And so as the price of fuel skyrockets, that compounds not only the individual and family household struggle to move around, it's not just an issue of personal transportation, it's an issue of food also, because that food needs to be transported. And so the fuel price actually affects and touches every other aspect of the Yemeni economy. When we think about what happens if there's more destruction and a total shutdown of imports through Hodeida, we're thinking about scarcity, but we're also thinking about a situation where food costs substantially more even than it does today. And for Yemenis who are already struggling and failing to regularly be able to buy food, that's a death sentence. One of the interesting things about this particular question is the role of the UN. On the one hand, we have a resolution for the UN that has, in some sense, authorized this intervention. And on the other hand, you have the UN sort of sanctioning or the treatment of the ports by the Saudis who are leading this coalition. It seems a little bit at odds with sort of UN values that, you know, you're supporting a joint effort to kind of return Yemen to democracy. On the other hand, you're starving out the population <laughs> through your alliance or support for the key act, one of the key actors. Yeah. How does that get reconciled at the UN, that contradiction? Well, it reflects the values and priorities of the powers driving the agenda. That accurately reflects the U.S. policy substantial contributions to humanitarian assistance, loud calls for peace, active support for one side of the conflict, regardless of the consequences. Roughly the same for the UK. And those two powers have largely determined the Security Council agenda. I think for the UN, the only additional complication is a substantial humanitarian assistance contribution from the Saudis and Emiratis. So in addition to having to accommodate the incoherent policy agendas of the two leading powers in the Security Council, the UN also has to contend with confronting two of the most problematic protagonists in the conflict while also praising and catering to its two largest humanitarian donors. Yeah, therein lies the problem. Yeah. So on the ground, though, maybe you could say a little bit about how is the UN discharging its humanitarian function? Because obviously it's critical in these kind of situations. Yeah. The government has obviously authorized the UN to be on the ground, given them sort of uh, permission, yielding sovereignty, as it were. How are they doing and what are they doing and where are they maybe failing and how is the funding? You know, it's so hard to say because it's such a difficult place to work. They have in the past struggled to recruit the kinds of people they need to lead an operation of this sophistication. They're getting better in that regard. Coordination has been a challenge, but they've gotten better in that regard. You know, in the end, they are responsible for negotiating with a number of parties to the conflict that fundamentally don't appreciate humanitarian principles, don't appreciate the reason why we're doing the work that we're doing. I think in general, they are very happy with financial inflows coming into the country addressing suffering, but all of the parties to the conflict want to be able to control those flows. And for the UN to hold its ground has been a big challenge. We want to turn at this point to um, the legislation that's been passed in Congress is intended in some sense to address particularly the egregious use of airstrikes by the Saudis across Yemen and affecting civilian populations rather dramatically. Can you take us through sort of what that legislative process has been and what it has yielded so far? Maybe we could talk a little bit about has it been consequential? Well, let's go back to 2015. You remember when you were at Oxfam, Ray, this was a very lonely effort at the beginning. 
It was trying to wave down a member of Congress to say something, to spare a tweet or a press release or a floor statement to say, this is a policy that's unfolding and I have a problem with it. There was an arms sale, a sale of precision guided munitions to Saudi Arabia in 2015, a very substantial one, that went through the U.S. Senate without a single vote against it. So that was 2015. It's been a process of gradually educating members of Congress, educating their constituents to write in, to call in, which I hope listeners do today to further bring home the message, to say that U.S. support for the coalition, particularly in the unconditional and indefinite manner that it's been offered, has actually fueled the conflict. And so now we're in a position where a majority of the Senate and the House have voted to pass a resolution that would extract U.S. forces from involvement, which is actually fairly minimal in operational terms, but very important in symbolic terms. And we aren't at a place where we're about to see a vote, but I think an even stronger majority would support substantially curtailing or cutting off the sales of certain weapons that are being used in the conflict on those grounds also. So we passed the legislation, but then we have a White House where John Bolton is the head of the National Security Council, and he's got very strong views about Iran and about geopolitics in the Gulf. And there are a whole variety of other, you could say, geostrategic sort of interests in that region. What's the likelihood of a presidential signature and any kind of consequential action on the part of the administration? Well, we really hope he signs it. At this point, the White House communications to the Hill have indicated that President Trump's advisors will urge him to veto. President Trump campaigned on a platform of ending U.S. involvement in foreign military engagements. So we hope that he signs consistent with that pledge. That being said, Ambassador Bolton hasn't been terribly involved. For Secretary Pompeo, who has been somewhat more involved and has been at the forefront of the Trump administration's effort to demonstrate solidarity with Saudi Arabia through a number of challenges, Yemen appears to be little more than a prism through which he can sound off on Iran, which I have to say has been pretty divorced from the actual reality of Iran's role in the conflict. Yeah, in some ways it's been overstated. So, Scott, maybe just as a kind of final thought, I think it might be useful for you to share with listeners what it is they might be able to do, either in terms of taking action as citizens of the United States and or desirous of participating in some way, direct or indirect, in the humanitarian response. Just give people some clues as to what the opportunities are. I mean, here in Indiana, we've had Todd Young, who's been a leader in Congress on this, is a Republican. He's been great. On that side of the aisle. We have Chris Coons in Delaware, Democrat, working with Todd Young. Delighted to see this kind of bipartisan support on Capitol Hill for this kind of initiative in these times. What else can you tell us about other supporters and other initiatives that people might want to associate themselves with? Senator Chris Murphy's been fantastic. The War Powers Resolution's been led by Bernie Sanders and Mike Lee on the Senate side. and the House side, it's Congressman Ro Khanna. I think we should mention that Ted Lieu from California and Ted Yoho from Florida have been tremendous. If you're represented by any of them, please thank them because they need to know that their leadership is being noticed and matters to people. In terms of what people can do, I'm pulled back to my trips to Yemen And I've asked the question now of many different groups in Yemen and in many different individual interviews. And it's been amazing to a single person when I ask, what message do you want to pass on to decision makers and world leaders about the war in Yemen and about what you want? Every single person has said one thing. They want peace. And to them, what that means is they want safety and they want the economy to go back to the way it was. And they want the parties to make the agreements to allow that to happen. 
the legislation that is before President Trump now will push the parties in that direction. The legislation that Senator Young introduced called the Saudi Arabia Accountability and Yemen Act will push the administration and will push the parties even further. So please write to your senator, write to your member of Congress, either to thank him or her or to urge him or her to co-sponsor that legislation. If you'd like to learn more, also please visit OxfamAmerica.org. Thank you so much, Scott. It's been a delight having you with us. And let's close again on that hope that we might see a lasting peace for the Yemeni people. And certainly through the hard work of you and others at Oxfam and across the humanitarian community, I know you're doing all you can to uh, achieve that. Again, my guest today on the Global Pathways podcast was Scott Paul, the humanitarian policy lead at Oxfam America, who was at the University of Notre Dame for a panel event entitled Hope for Yemen, Ending the World's Worst Humanitarian Crisis. Scott was on the panel with Awans Kamal, the Rights and Crisis Acting Head at Oxfam International, and Nawal Al-Maghafi, a special correspondent with the BBC. Learn more and see a recording of the panel at ndigd.nd.edu. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Global Pathways podcast. I'm Ray Offenheiser, and I'll see you next time. Additional support for the Global Pathways podcast with Ray Oppenheiser comes from the University of Notre Dame's Keough School of Global Affairs, home to NDIGD and other global institutes, centers, and programs. As Notre Dame's first new college or school in nearly a century, the Keough School places development at the heart of global affairs. Learn more at nd.edu slash global affairs.